0: The second century North African church father named Tertullian, very important figure, he famously asked the following question, and it's a question which is relevant to every age. He asked this: what has Athens to do with Jerusalem what concord is there between the academy and the church he wants to know what the relationship is between Athens which stands in represents secular thought at its best and Jerusalem which is used by Tertullian as a symbol of Christian conviction, rooted in God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And so the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, or what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? It asks, how do we as Christians relate? How do we relate as Christians to non-Christian thought? What do we do with it? And so you can see, even if you've never heard of Tertullian, Or you've never heard of his famous question. You've surely asked yourself this question. And in fact, all of us are living in terms of some kind of an answer to this question. It may not be a clearly thought out answer, but there's no escaping the question and living in terms of some kind of an answer. So I'll look at a couple possible ways to answer Tertullian's question, all of which are, to one extent or another, on display or have been on display in the history of the church. We could choose a Jerusalem-rejecting Athens approach. Jerusalem-rejecting Athens. This is an approach where all extra-biblical, all stuff outside the Bible, extra-biblical learning, is sort of despised or maybe marginalized. Now, this view is impossible to keep in full purity since we all learn stuff from unbelievers. We all learn things from extra-biblical sources. But there are some forms of fundamentalism which show such hostility to learning and intellectual activity that they come close to this position. A second option here would be Athens rejecting Jerusalem. So here the idea is that Athens is in the driver's seat, and where the Bible conflicts with secular thought, Athens wins. And the biblical teaching is either rejected or ignored or explained away, and a good deal of modern Christianity falls into this model. Doesn't it? There's a third option. And that would be Jerusalem segregated from Athens. Here the idea is, well, the Bible has its domain. Secular thought has its domain. And the two have a sort of separate but equal relationship. So, in in this view, if some point of history or some scientific viewpoint of the secular conflicts with the Scripture or appears to do so, it's not a problem. Scripture talks about spiritual things, and Athens tells us about worldly things with its own authority. And a good many Christians hold to this kind of a view today. Another variant of this, a fourth one, is Jerusalem integrated with Athens. Here the idea is, well, we have to take from the Bible, take from the best of both sources, sort of balance them and arrive at a proper understanding. Right, We synthesize things from different sources. Scripture and unbelieving learning. So we have at least four views. There's more. I won't afflict you with them. But there's, there's at least those four. I want to suggest that Paul's procedure in Acts 17 follows none of these methods. None. A different and I think a properly biblical method. But we won't get to that, Lord willing, until next week. When we look at his actual address to the Athenians What I'd like to do this morning And you saw this in the New Testament lesson Is look at this very interesting background As to what provokes Paul's address And so this is sort of a two-part series This week and next week, Paul in Athens So Paul is in Athens The place where the roots of democracy were planted The philosophical center Of the ancient world Athens has four Major Schools For which it's famous One was associated with Plato The academy One was associated with Aristotle It was called the Lyceum One was associated with Epicurus And one was associated With uh, Zeno Who was the father of Stoicism So there are four schools of thought And all of these, it's like having four Ivy League schools in your city. Think of it that way. Um, All of these schools were founded like in the 3rd or 4th century B.C. Now, why this is important is, for our text, we have to say something about Epicurus. The Garden of Epicurus was one of the schools at Athens and the Stoics because our text tells us in verse 18 that Paul encountered Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. So we might not want to know anything about Stoicism or Epicureanism, but we have to if we're going to read Acts chapter 17. So the Epicureans, these, both of these schools of thought, by the way, are very modern. The Epicureans were materialists. They believed the universe was made up of these atoms which swerved eternally and fell through space randomly. That's that's not very uh, ancient, is it? That's a fairly relevant view. Matter in motion, basically. And uh, all knowledge they thought, the Epicureans thought, came through sense perception, so they sought purely natural explanations for everything. You know the word Epicureanism, I think. That comes from Epicurus. He taught that lasting pleasure was the goal of life, but not the way you think. If you call someone an Epicurean, generally in our culture, that means you're calling them a hedonist. But that's not what Epicurus meant. He meant tranquility. By pleasure, he meant sort of tranquility, isolation from disturbing passions. A focus on the simple things, realizing that death is the end. Enjoy what you can without fear. And so needless to say, these Epicureans, they were hostile to theology. And the Stoics are very much like them. They agreed that all knowledge comes from sense perception. They held the world, the Stoics held the world was governed by reason. But this is weird. Uh, The the reason for them, or the logos, same word that John uses in his gospel in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word logos, that's the Stoics' reason. They held that this reason was a kind of refined fire that permeated everything. You'll meet Stoics today. The goal of Stoics today is to live in harmony with nature, which for them meant to be in harmony with reason. Stoics then, and some of them now, generally taught a cyclical view of history, meaning that history went through sequences over and over and over and over again. And the things that are happening now will happen again and again and again and again. Recently I read uh, Marcus Aurelius's, Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor about 180 A.D., and he was a Stoic. He lived a couple hundred years after the school of Stoicism, but he was a Stoic. And he has a little famous book called The Meditations. It's just like 190 pages long. You could read it in a couple nights. And his little pithy sayings, Proverbs, many of them are very good. But Aurelius is a Stoic, and you can see in this uh, his fatalism. You can see this idea that everything is is moving around in cycles, and it'll happen again and again and again and again. And, And these views are held by a number of vocal atheists today. The late Christopher Hitchens was a professed admirer of the thought of Epicurus. So it turns out these two schools of thought are more relevant than we might think. Now, it's important to see that by Paul's day, this is a couple hundred years after these schools were started, they're not really in their heyday anymore. Their glory days are long past. And the situation in the ancient world and in Greece is is mostly one of widespread skepticism. And really, boredom, as we shall see. In that sense, also, the situation is a lot like the 21st century West. Sheer exhaustion, boredom characterizes a good bit of our culture. So with that, I want to get to the text. Paul is on something of a missionary furlough here. He's been dropped off in Athens. He's waiting. He's got some free time. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to to join him. And so in... Verse 16, starting there, I want to look at Paul's little vacation under four headings. Four simple headings. What he saw, what he felt, what he did, and where it landed him. What he saw, what he felt, what he did, and where it landed him. So, verse 16... First, here, Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, and it says he's greatly distressed. Some translations say his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, what does Paul see? He sees the city's full of idols. In Athens, Temples and altars and statues and shrines of innumerable gods and goddesses were on display. One writer said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The Acropolis, the the town's ancient citadel, is one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the nation's glory and all the worship of the gods. Then there was the Parthenon, which you can see the runes of even today. And then there is the Agora, the marketplace. The Agora is the marketplace, a sort of open-air assembly. And Paul, wandering around, would have seen Mercury, and Bacchus, and Neptune, and Venus, and Diana, and Hermes, and many, many, many more. And thus the term full of idols, in verse 16, carries the idea of covered, swarming, swamped with idols. Now, it's important to see this. Paul is no uncultured buffoon. I mean, he's from Tarsus. It's a city with its own academic credentials. And then Saul went and studied under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He has his own Ivy League education. And he would have, on one level at least, appreciated what he saw. A lot of this stuff was lovely. But Paul is also, he's no fanny-packing tourist. You know, with, with with a, he doesn't have his Fodor's guidebook to Athens with him. He's scrutinizing this stuff the text indicates. And as he scrutinizes it, sure he can appreciate it, but he subjects it to his own intense set of biblical convictions. And so we don't get a diary here of Paul the Apostle does Athens. You're not getting invited over to his house when he gets back home to look at these pictures. Look, this is me next to the altar of the 12 gods. They have really good gyros there. (laughs) So there's a question that has to be asked here. It's a serious question, really. What do we see when we go on vacation? It's a summer vacation text. Paul sees idolatry public, pervasive idolatry. Now, this does not make him a fun vacationer to be with. (laughs) Right? And you can see the same thing in virtually every American city or any American shopping mall, for that matter. It's not hard to see this stuff. It's just we sort of get used to it and it just goes past us and we don't acknowledge it. Sex, money, image, worshipers of the body gods of success, worshipers of technology, sports stadiums as shrines. We're not very good at picking out the idols that are in our culture. We're very good at picking out the idols in everybody else's culture. Notice in this text, we're not talking about the idols of our hearts. This text is not about the idols inside our hearts. There are plenty of texts about that. This isn't one of them. This text is about public national idols, the kind of stuff that's swarming around Times Square and Washington, D.C. So, what exactly are we seeing when we look around? So, what Paul does here is he sees through the cultural pride, he sees through the legitimate artistic skill on display. And he sees a suffocating, publicly indulged-in idolatry. As one person aptly put it, religious loyalty and moral considerations precluded artistic compliments. Look, if you go to Notre Dame in Paris, it's going to be fantastically beautiful. But if there are hundreds of people inside there bowing down and kissing icons, it's going to poison your experience. And so, this has to do with our eyes. Paul says in Ephesians, the eyes of our hearts have to be enlightened to see God. And if they're enlightened to see God, then we start to see the world as God sees the world. And that's what this text is calling us to. The renewal of our eyesight. Secondly, what does Paul feel? If we don't see right, we won't feel right. Paul saw rightly, and then he felt faithfully. He saw correctly, he felt faithfully. You know, our desires, really in large measure, our feelings, follow our senses. Right? We see something and then we either want it or we don't want it. We're repulsed or we're attracted, whatever. So seeing will essentially govern feeling. That's why we have to see properly. And the text says here in verse 16 that his spirit was greatly distressed. The word is his spirit was provoked within him. So the word for provoked here was originally a medical term, which was Connected with seizures. We get the word uh, paroxysm from this word. Uh, fits of epilepsy. And, and the word means Paul was seized with indignation. He was roused to anger. Again, this, is, this really makes your vacation difficult. Right? He's walking around Athens of all places and he's seized with indignation. But you don't get your own travel show when you denounce all the cultural monuments on TV. Right? So the idea here, though, and we have to make this distinction the idea is not that Paul pitched a fit. That's not what's going on here. The, the word indicates a settled, continuous reaction to what he saw. He's not ashamed of what he felt. Because his emotional response is righteous. And you know what the best indicator of that is? That this word for provoked is used throughout the Old Testament of Israel provoking Yahweh to anger. So this is, on Paul's part, true, robust godliness. So not only is seeing important, feeling right is important. We, we think that we can't control how we feel or that feelings are sort of beyond the pale, but the Bible is always commanding our feelings, constantly commanding our feelings, right? Look at the commands in the New Testament. Weep with those who weep. Well, I don't feel like we, well, it doesn't matter. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be joyful. Mourn. The Bible commands your emotional life. It doesn't say, look, I'm just going to command your will. The emotions are up to you, or the, or the emotions will follow. No, the Bible always regularly says to us, you should have this set of emotions. And you don't get to say, well, look, you know, I'm Irish. I can't do that. <laughs> right? I, well, Or whatever, you know. So it's interesting. We often talk about God working through us, or God using us, rightfully so. But how about this? How about letting God feel through you? How about letting your life express God's emotional life? That requires communion with God. That's what Paul is doing here. The word provoke lets us know this. He is emotionally reflecting the passion of his God who will not Give his glory to another. The God who is a jealous God, who brooks no rivals, who as the creator and the redeemer rightly calls us to his exclusive worship. Now we said this last week, but it bears repeating because it it is such a, it's a pervasive thing that this concept of jealousy in God is somehow uh, unwarranted or, unjust, and we said jealousy can be a peevish and sinful thing in humans, and in many ways it it can be. But if a third party enters a marriage, or an outside party seeks to harm your children, then any sane person is rightly and justly jealous. And jealousy at this point is a virtue. This is what we mean when we say God is a jealous God. And so the text is actually calling us to allow our emotional life to reflect the pure, holy, good jealousy of God. And because it doesn't, we walk around Athens eating ice cream all day and seeing no idols. None. We walk around Washington, D.C., no idols. Took the eighth grade class to Washington, D.C., come back, no reports of idols. Apparently there's no idols in Washington, D.C., We go to New York City, we come back, there are no reports of idols. No idols were spotted. So these gods are like an intruder to Paul in a marriage. They have no business being there. And behind these gods, by the way, which are in themselves nothing, Paul tells us, are dark principalities and powers. The reason God is jealous is because these things subvert and destroy and capture human beings. And God who made all men is good and just and loving in his provocation. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so the fire of divine jealousy is the fire of pure love pure love love cannot be indifferent and so even on vacation paul is jealous for the glory of god and we need a lot more of this as we stroll around whether with the remote in hand or in the culture at large see aright and then you feel aright and that requires knowing god as he is christ Right, this is a simple Christian truth. Christ dwells in you by the Spirit. That means Christ wants to emotionally live through you by the Spirit. If He inhabits you, then He is to inhabit our emotional life. And you can see that in Paul. Third is to look at what Paul did. You can see this in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Now, this is important. Paul does not start a campaign to remove the idols. Nor does he start accosting people or denouncing people. He went to the synagogues and he reasoned. He disputes. He conversed. These would be substantial, time-consuming conversations. There's a deep patience implied in this language here. Notice what else the Apostle is sort of standing on with great confidence. He's standing on the idea that the Christian revelation is reasonable. That there aren't two spheres. There's not like, here's what the Bible says and here's what reason says. Paul, who believes the authority of Scripture, reasons. He thinks that the revelation of what God has done in Christ is public reason. The logos, the reason of the Stoics, he's going to announce, has become flesh. Jesus is the logic or the reason of God made flesh. The Christian story is the logic or the reason of the world. The Christian claim is eminently reasonable. The rejection of it is sheer irrationality. And so if you see right, and then you feel right, You can reason aright. Christian public reason is logic on fire. And that's what Paul is about here. And as was his custom, he would go to the synagogues. He would use the Old Testament. He would tell the story of Jesus. And he would seek to persuade. He would seek to persuade through give and take that Jesus is the Christ. Christ. There's no fear in this approach of Paul, is there? He's not afraid of logic or history or an open discussion in a strange city with a bunch of people about a text. And he does this week in and week out in Athens. But notice something else. We know Paul went to the synagogues, but also in addition to this, the text tells us he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, this is boldness. He talked to people about Jesus. He saw, he felt, he reasoned. Out in the open market of life. Now, we have to be clear here. These, these marketplaces were public places of public discussion. Right? This is not like going up to somebody in Adams and starting to talk to them. Right? These marketplaces were forums, where debates. and dis- So Paul, Paul's not harassing people. And he's not intruding upon people who don't want to listen. But he is going to the places where people had public discussions. Where they could be reasoned with. And so we should do the same. We should find or create or use forums to tell people to reason with them about Jesus. We should use the media available to us to reason Reason has fallen on hard times in our culture. (laughs) But it's one of those things that if you chase it out the front door, it comes back in the back door. You can't avoid it. Reason cannot be thrown out. And that's part of what we have to do, is explain that reason is indispensable and that Christian revelation is public reason. So finally, I want to look at where all this lands Paul. Paul. Verse 18 says, some of the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers disputed with him. Well, you'd expect them to dispute with him. These are the intellectuals in the marketplace. And these highbrow types, they were quite critical of Paul. The middle of verse 18 says, they said to him, what has this babbler trying to say? This is a put down. The word for babbler is like local slang. It means a seed picker. And it refers to these um, scavenger birds who would live off of random scraps of food. And so the insult is something like this. Paul is incoherent. He doesn't have a system. He picks up a scrap here and a scrap there. It sounds like what he's saying is warmed over, plagiarizing. And we've got thousands of gods, and he's picking up an aspect of this god and an aspect of that god. Verse 18 tells us, Others said he seems to be advocating foreign gods because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You know, his audience, and this shows you the confusion in this culture, his audience seems to think, now get this, they seem to think that Paul's a polytheist. That he's preaching foreign gods, plural. Right? And it looks like, if you read the text closely, that they think that Jesus is one God, and the resurrection is another God. Right, you talk about not being well-received by your audience. Like, n- are not understood properly. I mean, they've really massively misunderstood a guy who is the most lucid, compelling, clear, systematic Christian preacher in the first century. Maybe in the history of the church, the Apostle Paul. Right? He sets forth some stuff, and, there, and, then, and then he says, now tell me back what I just said to you. Right? And he can't even recognize it. This is what happens when cultures become like this. Nevertheless, there was just enough. They wanted to hear a little more. So verse 19 says they take him. That's a forceful word. It's almost like an arrest, by the way, what's going on here. They take him to the Areopagus. Areopagus means the hill of Ares. And Ares is Mars. The god of war. That's why sometimes this is known as Paul at Mars Hill, this passage. Um, It was a hill near the Acropolis where there'd be sort of a judicial court, sort of where the city council met. So it's a very serious deal. That's what's going on with Paul. It's not like, hey, let's go down to the river and continue this conversation. This is something like a, a formal preliminary hearing about his new deities that's going on. So they take him and they say, you're going before the council. We're going to hear about these deities. And so he's made some inroads. They say in verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You bring some new strange things to our ears. We wish to know what they mean. We're fast coming to this point in our culture. And with some people, we're already there, right? The gospel is strange. I mean, it really is strange. It's always been strange. And we're starting to realize in the West again that it's really strange. Right, Paul said in the first century, the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Athenians, Greeks, meaning Gentiles in general. Not, not, he's not singling out Greeks, but he means non-Jews. I mean, Paul's view has always been that the gospel is odd. Strange. Bizarre. And it's good for us to be reminded of this. We think, now, we are doing two things here. We're affirming that the gospel is utterly rational and reasonable. And yet, to the unbeliever, will sound completely bizarre. Now, you can see just how earnest this court is about actually learning By Luke's comment in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Means they were on their cell phone all the time. On their social media accounts. When skepticism overtakes a people. Remember, the the, the serious philosophies way in the past, Plato and Aristotle, now it's just malaise, boredom. Right. A sort of angst. So skepticism sort of overtakes the people. What, what do you have left? You have a lust for novelty. Oh, what's new? New, new? new things, new ideas, new experiences, new shiny objects to distract people before they die. That's all you got left. I mean, if, if, if the whole universe is matter in motion, then all you've got is the latest commotion. Right. That's it. That's it. And so the Athenians, with their grand philosophical heritage and the foreigners who live there, Luke makes this aside. He says they really spent a lot of time just trying to find new things to talk about. So we'll look at the act. This, it's magnificent. I encourage you to read it. Paul's actual proclamation in defense of the gospel next week. It's right, it's right after our text. But we should take to heart what the Lord has for us in his word here. And it's, it's simple, but it, it is challenging. We need new eyes to see it right. Nobody wants to do this because it's going to place you at war with our culture and its idols. But it has to do with seeing the world rightly. The eyes of our hearts have to be enlightened. And when our hearts are renewed, they're going to be jealous for the glory of God. This is a good indicator of our spiritual well-being. If our hearts are provoked when God is dishonored or ignored or when his glory is given to another. Right, didn't Jesus show this same spirit when he came into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers? Get, Get these gods out of here. He did the same thing with his disciples in Matthew 24. They said, Lord, look at these temples, all these beautiful buildings in the temple. Do you remember what Jesus said? Now, Jesus knew the buildings were beautiful. He said, there's not one stone here that will not be torn down. He sees through to the root of what's going on. And so, again, we have to allow God to feel through us. And we've got to use whatever forums we have to share the gospel. We must learn that from this text. Use the forums where open public discussion is allowed to share the good news of Jesus. If we feel the provocation, we'll share the good news more eagerly. You know, it's not simply that in the gospel, sinners need grace, which we do. It's about the glory of God's name being vindicated and upheld. That's why we preach the gospel. For it's only by the gospel, Paul tells us, that men can turn from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us, saves us from the good and pure jealousy, wrath, which surely is to come. Amen. Amen.